Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Zach, and up next, continuing our examination of toughness in terms of how to listen to your body and fine-tune your inner dialogue. And after that, World of Running updates about USXC championships, inside scoop on pro training, and more. Well, glad to have you back with us again. And, of course, I have to apologize that you can only hear Zach's voice at the moment. But fear not, Andy will be back on here shortly when we get back to the main topic. Uh, But I've got to introduce this one solo as she's out and about at the moment. Uh, Speaking of being out and about, we will be answering your questions next week. And so if you've got thoughts on your mind and you haven't found the time to sit down and put them into words and send them to us, Now's the time to do so. And of course, if we already have a full docket for the schedule for next week's Q&A, we will answer them the next time around. And so we'll continue to get to your questions and we'll continue to do uh, our due diligence to give you information that is helpful and practical and precise to your needs. To answer, or to rather to ask your questions for us to answer, go to adizyrunning.com slash question. You can do that anytime. And at the end of every month, we'll answer uh, a slew of those questions to try to help you out in your current training endeavors. Now, remember that if you have not yet done so and you're planning on running the Rivertown Races events, that will be on April 22nd. And if you're in the West Michigan area, it's a great race. If you're going to be traveling into the West Michigan area, it's a great opportunity to enjoy some of the scenery in the Grand Rapids, uh, greater Grand Rapids area. So, In doing that, if you have not registered yet, you need to because then you can take advantage of all of the benefits, including training provided by A to Z Running. And if you would like something more than the provided training, like a customized program built just for you, if you have registered for Rivertown Races, you will get 50% off that customized program um, as well. But you have to register first. And so be sure to register with our discount code so you can get 10% off your race entry. You can go to rivertownraces.com, look for the registration information there. And when you register, use code A to Z10. Again, at rivertownraces.com. And then when you register, use A to Z10. You'll get your 10% off. Well, We've got a lot of interesting things to discuss here. And since you don't want to hear too much more of Zach's voice by himself, let's get on to the main topic. All right. Well, we've been talking about Steve Magnus's work on the topic of toughness in Do Hard Things, his latest book. I believe it is his latest book. I guess I don't know because he writes a lot of books, but... The point here is we are about halfway through the key ideas in the text. And this next section here that we're going to address is where things really get to the heart of what does it look like at the psychological level to deal with intuitive physiological training. I think that's an interesting connection. And we're going to try to address that with his second and third pillars in the text specifically. And Andy's back with us again. And so she's going to be able to share insights here on the topic. Mm-hmm. I'm back again. Yeah, because you weren't at the intro. Oh. <laughs> and everyone's really, Glad really confused. How did she come back? How did I come back? We're not going to give away our secrets. Don't ask. 
<laughs> is this really a split screen or is it not? No, because my arm's crossing that center line. If you have not watched the podcast lately, we have our studio finished in terms of like the design and everything. And it's really cool looking. But we've heard that it kind of sometimes looks like we're in two different rooms and like a split screen. Um, but my arm is kind of blocking covering the line right now. So anyone who's watching knows what I'm talking about. Those who aren't, you're just not in the in crowd. Don't worry about it. You're just not as cool. Zach Ripley. That's Kidding. exactly the opposite of what we want to foster here. All right. So this week we're talking about listening to your body and controlling your inner dialogue. As Zach said, this mm -hmm. is taken from Steve Magnus's book, Do Hard Things. And we're going to start with pillar two, listen to your body, which we think actually goes into the second pillar or the third pillar as well. Respond. They go together. They have to go together. <laughs> they have yeah. to go together. Respond instead of react. So we're going to start talking about emotions and feelings. And so there's a lot of you that are going to want to tune out right now, but don't wait because you're it not is. Gonna, no, you're not going to want to tune out right now. No. No. Because this is, this is at, the, at the core of intuitive training, like the kind of training that is responsive to what your body is doing in the moment. Um, you have to have ways to identify the good and the bad of what's happening. And you have to know what to do with those signals. And this is a really insightful work mm -hmm. by Magnus on this topic. Zach, do you have feelings? I think no, I actually wants don't. <laughs> so this is always an interesting one for me because he starts talking about things like feelings and uh, what are those? And then emotions. And it's like, yeah, I'm lost. But, but Magnus will, will argue, I, I should say, Magnus will argue that feelings and emotions are two different things. And I think the distinction that he draws is an interesting one. So we'll talk about it. But also at the same time, a lot of this kind of stuff is like semantic game playing. Mm -hmm. it, you can use the word simultaneously. We, we certainly get that. Uh, but at the core of it is like you're feeling something. Figuring out what that is, why that is, and then what to do with it is really important in any given moment in life. But, uh, you know, as, as we're out there on the run, it's essential yeah. for training well. Yeah. And feelings can be like physiological. So everybody has these feelings and even Zach. And then there's interpretation, which many of us don't realize that we're having emotion play in to how we're feeling. We just think that it's a sensation in our body, but actually how we're interpreting it with mm. our brain is going to matter in how we react. Well, and that's, so aside from me who has no emotion, I have no emotions, <laughs> everyone else, any kind of physical stimuli is impossible to experience for humans because we are sentient and complex neurological beings. Um, it's impossible to experience a physical stimuli without an emotional association. And so that's a really fascinating consideration when you think about like most of those emotional associations are conditioned via a whole lot of different potential circumstances. But based on that fact, knowing why am I feeling this kind of emotion based on this kind of physical situation yeah. is a really interesting reflection. So, so this, let's get into it. Yeah. So this is how Magnus differentiates. Feelings are a nudge like... Mm, Something feels different and then emotions are more like a shove and they require more context and meaning. So he's basically defining them differently in terms of degree. So if if the emotion is like love and hate, the feeling is like I kind of like or I'm kind of not sure about this. Thing. It's, you know, it's like subtler. Yes. And, and can be in detached from context, too, which. In, in this kind of a case, that makes sense. Uh, you got to have a way to differentiate uh, degrees of things here. So we're going to use feelings and emotions as ways to differentiate the scale of it. And also, I, he was using it a lot in 
in and out of the word sensation as well, hmm. which we wouldn't really talk about in association with feelings um, necessarily. So like, oh, I feel something, I feel a sensation in my hamstring, but it's like a very subtle feeling in my hamstring. And it kind of just like leaves my mind. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, that could also be like a sensation. We'll try to, we'll try to feeling. figure yeah. this out as we go. <laughs> Feelings aren't just reactive, but also predictive. And this was fascinating to me because we as humans will often anticipate something that's coming mm. and have an actual sensation or feeling because of that prediction. For instance, the research that was used for the example here was the phone buzzing in your pocket. I don't know if any of you guys have experienced that. I certainly have, where you have that phantom uh, feeling of the phone buzzing. And so that's predictive because the idea of the feeling brings about then a sensation. Right. Because there's okay. this like predictive. So yeah. I think that I think that it must come soon or I think mm. that it's coming and then I feel the buzz. Or there's been a certain amount of time that has gone by where I haven't had a message that I was expecting and I feel that sensation. So it, feelings are distorted sometimes and it depends on context and interpretation, even uh, in running. Indeed. And that context piece is such a fascinating one. How many times have we talked about uh, with you all that when you are running in different contexts, like with different people, for instance, the way you experience the feeling of the run is different. Why is it so, uh, for many of us, so much easier to accidentally run too hard when we're with other people, for instance? Because we are literally interpreting our body's sensations differently because of that context. Same thing when you're like doing something like running a race or if you're running in a really, really beautiful environment potentially is going to influence the way you're experiencing something or the opposite or the opposite <laughs> a really cold rain perhaps yes. <laughs> yeah this is a quote that i wanted to highlight here our ability to make sense of the simple sensations and complex emotions leads to better decision making and ultimately toughness so we're bringing it around to that toughness conversation mm -hmm. again situations that require toughness are conditions that are primed for misreading and misattributing our feelings and emotions so particularly in a race or in a high stakes situation or performance it is easier to make mistakes when it comes to interpretation of our our feelings and emotions mm. That is that is interesting, and, and it's true, but it's not true in the same way for everyone, That's which true. is yeah. an important. I've talked with some of our athletes recently about um, race day experiences and some of the uh, some of the challenges emotionally, cognitively around like races, and it's like um, psychologically, I should say. So I feel like stressors in one of two ways. You know, I'm really excited, uh, nervous, anxiety type of thing, or I'm really afraid and uh, the fear is, you know, a different type of nervous energy. Um, and so in that sense, like the the mistakes that I make are different in kind because of the nature of how that feeling comes across. So I make I make certain mistakes because I'm too excited or I make certain mistakes because I'm too afraid. But ultimately, I'm, I'm arriving at the same mm. challenge in a sense. Mm -hmm. This was interesting, too, because we are looking at the opportunity here of how to train our minds and 
into perspectives that help us be more tough, right? But the same is true on the opposite end. If we continually misread our signals, our body's signals, our body's predictions will be flawed. So we can actually train ourselves to have a flawed reaction to certain sensations and certain feelings. Or even in insofar as the anticipation of the thing is also then flawed. And so what it comes down to is something like this. And, and we're going to let, let's just give the example because I think this will help make more sense. Um, the idea of like the difference between a state of being and a feeling that I'm feeling in a moment. And so for a runner, it might be something like I'm tired. Um, and so the anticipation of feeling tired and I've conditioned myself to feel that tiredness sensation and enter a state of being in my mind, I'm now tired, as opposed to the, the opposing consideration here is that I am feeling tiredness in my legs, which is a different thing. Okay. Right so now. I'm feeling tiredness right now versus I am tired. One says, this is my current state of being. The other says, here's something that's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that matters. It, it, the nuance sometimes is going to arrive at the same result for a person. So I'm not saying that just by simply changing that nuance that it's going to totally be a different thing. But it can be insofar as I'm anticipating that I will feel a tiredness in my legs, but that doesn't necessarily define my state of being in the moment. And so part of that is like it can be temporary. Part of that is it can be overcome. And part of that is I can do something about that in the moment that may potentially change it. So mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that here. That's one mm -hmm. of the one of the key aspects of the third pillar, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. I love practical stuff, and I know a lot of you guys do too. So we're going to talk about an exercise that you can do to develop the nuance of these feelings and sensations. First, you want to go deep into understanding the nuance by getting specific and doing something that's uncomfortable. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, it's very easy to choose something. Maybe you're going to do a steady state and you will choose this exercise to then dial in, feel, and identify the sensations as you're running. And I don't mean just like noticing them. I mean labeling them. And having a framework for it. But you don't want to attach it to negative things necessarily. So you want it to be just really platonic. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? Where do you use platonic? You don't want it to have some sort of emotional attachment to it. So for instance, in the beginning of a race or before a big key workout, you might have performance adrenaline. Hmm. Label it performance adrenaline. Don't say dread or that you're nervous. <laughs> those see. those are assigning more meaning than it needs to have. It needs to be uh, something just very basic. Performance so you're trying to, you're adrenaline. You're trying to objectify yeah. the thing that you're feeling at, and so detach an emotional state from the sensation. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the goal. Mm -hmm. Or tricky. as you were saying, like, I'm feeling fatigue in my legs. So you can say that I guess it is like my leg, like your legs are tired, but that is not, then it gives you a handle to then make a decision from there. Also, oftentimes your body is giving you the sensation of fatigue before your limits. And it can come in waves sometimes. So identifying that, be like, okay, what am I going to do with this? Am I within my wheelhouse? Make that consideration. Or do I need to back off in order to complete the duration of the 
uh, workout that I'm supposed to be doing. So reappraise it. Now see this thing you identified as helpful information. This is good information for me. This is going to help me complete the workout. So feeling this little fatigue in my legs is actually telling me how I need to adjust in order to be successful to finish the workout strong. Hmm. I love Dakota Linworm in her, our episode with her. She said that when someone passes her or is coming up on her shoulder, instead of having that competitive or that threat amygdala lit up she sees it as an opportunity to latch on so when someone passes her she's like this person can help me this person is a tool to help me reach my success and of course she's going to want to beat that person in the end but she's like that person can take me to success so instead of Mm -hmm. viewing someone passing her as defeat she's seeing it as an opportunity and that is a great way to reappraise a situation that might have otherwise been something that made you frustrated. Mm. I view someone passing me as an opportunity as well to trip someone. That's okay. so. goodness gracious. <laughs> Zach is not just, as horrible of a while, It's been a while since I've says. had a quip in this episode, so oh. I just felt like the need. But, um, well, so in, in, in so much of this is happening at the nearly unconscious level. Um, so part of the like the just kind of practice and exercise of putting myself in the situation and trying to kind of identify what it is that I'm feeling, uh, both at the physiological level and at the psychological level, and trying to separate them is kind of a key dynamic here. But as it goes, almost all of this is followed up by my self-talk. And so I'm feeling something and then I start talking to myself about what I'm mm-hmm. feeling. And that's where kind of the, especially like where do I tend to make the biggest mistakes is then what I start to tell myself about the things that are happening. So the internal dialogue and Magnus goes into that at length. Mm -hmm. Including some tips, which I love tips. They're very simple and then you can implement them. One of which you probably have heard before, and that is not to use first person language, but to use second or third person saying you to yourself or she or your own name even. So this helps you distance and mm. you're able to then more objectively listen to that voice, if that makes sense. It is true. Is that is that kind it of is. the idea? So Zach? this is a yeah, this is actually um, a conflict resolution technique for children as well and developmental psychology um, where you you when you're talking about a negative behavior of a child and this is you'll read this in like a lot of parenting books out there especially some of the newer ones that are trying to be like hip on the times and so they talk about like you know when the kid is uh unruly and not able to um not able to engage coherently with something so like emotions are high uh then what you do is you start talking to the kid in third person super awkward um because you're trying to like talk to another person about him or herself as a separate person. So like I'm saying, you know, when Andy does that, she really should, but I'm talking to Andy. Um, and so the, the technique is mm-hmm. in, it, it's a deliberate technique because what it shows um, is that we tend to be able to then see the person in a more objective way than if I'm assuming the personhood, which I have. So I like the I idea do that of doing myself. that for yourself more than with someone else. <laughs> 
<laughs> but if you did that to me, I would be like, that's so condescending. Well, and yes, I, but you are not a four-year-old child that's, that's throwing true. a tantrum. That's true. So <laughs> remember, I said developmental psychology with children. Yeah. Um, yes, but that's, that's exactly it. So it is, it is an effective technique, especially in terms of detaching the emotional state from the advice. And so I can give myself, in that sense, more sound advice just simply by um, talking to myself differently. I thought it was interesting. Today on my steady state run, I was using this technique and I found that I, this is a vulnerable moment here, I believed myself more when I said it in third person or I said you as if I was someone talking to myself because of the insecurity that I sometimes feel. Mm. So you're able to affirm yourself? I guess this is the, <laughs> that's interesting. It, yeah, I think I think I was because at times you start to doubt yourself when you're you're running and you're just like, oh, you know, I'm so weak or, you know, all those bad things. Right. And then when you say it in third person, like Andy, you're a strong <laughs> marathoner doing eight miles at steady state is is well within your control and wheelhouse. And I also told myself, like, you're you're really good at staying calm. And you enjoy, Andy, you enjoy these longer workouts. And it was interesting because just having that conversation with myself, I had one of the best runs, like feeling uh, that had a lot to do with that. My hips felt good and strong and my body was firing how it's supposed to. But also psychologically, I loved it. I had so much fun. It was raining. I was not, I was just, you know, pushing the bubble, huh. as Zach says, but not pressing so hard that I felt out of control or wasn't, I wasn't feeling negative, but I, I do want to give some props to this method because I do think that it helped me stay positive. Mm. And I did believe the you Andy more than I, if I was like, I, I'm trying to convince myself I'm tough. I'm this, I'm that. Were they true things? Were you telling yourself yeah, true things? I was telling myself true things. Did those not so, sound true to you, I'm Zach? Just, I'm asking, actually, Andy, I'm asking because remember the first pillar from Magnus's book, which is facing things in reality, yeah. getting rid of the facade. So in this moment, and this is, this is actually an interesting experiment because they've looked at this um, specifically with, okay, so here's the, you've heard, um, you've heard of like the positive mantra kind of thing uh, where it's like, if you... Uh, if you believe it or if you uh, say it aloud and repeat it, that you can make a thing reality by basically like changing your perception, right? Um, so it's like I am fast. I am fast and, and I can be fast because I am telling myself that. Um, what they actually find is that uh, positive reinforcement and self-talk by itself in isolation produces – a decline in the desired behavior over time. And what they, the reason that they look at that is because if you have positive reinforcement self-talk that is based on incremental focused, like this is the next step in things and has then a kind of deliberate planning behind it, then it does produce the desired behaviors and outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting contrast. But the point is, is in, in Magnus's writing here, first we have to start with like, what's reality? Um, in terms of the th the way we're talking to ourselves then in this instance, if I'm telling myself a thing that's not true, you like Andy. No, no, wait, I'm talking to myself. Zach, you really like feeling this way. You you know, you like the challenge. You like the and and so if that's not true, it will actually backfire. It oh, will more than likely cause the 
opposite outcome of what I'm intending. So that's where, again, it's like, if I really don't like this kind of thing, we've, we've talked with runners who are like, okay, I don't really like feeling horribly uncomfortable, like pushing myself really hard. That's not a feeling I enjoy. So in that moment, you can tell yourself directly, like you don't like being uncomfortable, but you know that you will feel better because you did this, right? You, you will feel better because you did this. That by itself can actually still accomplish the same desirable outcome, even though I don't like what I'm doing right now, like in that kind of a sense. But you want to, you do, you really don't want to use negative language. So instead, say, just no, do the no, second no. part of it where right, like, that's I what know I was this saying. is good for me. I am, I am capable of completing this, this workout. I know that it is creating the adaptations that are going to grow my fitness. Like instead of saying, I don't like this workout. <laughs> but, but once again, knowing the state of things and being, in, honest in the reality it, and yeah, honest. You just, you can, that's one of the key pieces here is as yeah, magnus suggests that you name the thing that's happening yeah yeah okay. uh, andy does not so i'm a pessimist i actually don't mind negativity i kind of <laughs> always think negative thoughts and have to like find ways to make them positive um so but it, it is true though that you have to kind of understand yourself with these things because it, these things do not these kinds of approaches uh in, in a psychology uh, world do not apply equally for everyone. So trying something and kind of getting the impression of like, does that, so I don't talk to myself in second and third person um, because I don't believe it when I say it to myself. Mm. <laughs> but I believe everything that is happening in my own head. Right, Andy? Like I always think yeah, I'm right about everything. True. So as, as a result, if I'm telling myself in first person, I'm more likely to believe it than if I'm telling myself in third person. So again, you have to know yourself in these things and you it's worth trying that's kind of one of mm -hmm. magnus's arguments here is you have to kind of try things and experience them to get a sense for what's happening and try to sort it out the strategy have you ever talked to yourself out loud when you're in a moment of stress or even when you're not have you ever spoken to yourself out loud because it was something important i have and i didn't realize it's a technique mm. Say the thing, the voice, because there's often many voices within your head. The voice you want to listen to, say it out loud and give it more power. That gives it more power to say it out loud. But I even have done that when I'm running. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know that I have a response to that, except for the people around you thought it was kind of strange, but I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, actually, though, this is this is once again, it's a fascinating thing, but you can actually create emotion or enhance emotion by saying a thing out loud um, in that in exact in that exact sense. So Andy's saying like she's trying to build confidence by saying like you do like this kind of thing, like you you do enjoy doing what you're doing. Now you say that in your head, and there's one layer of response. You say that out loud to yourself, and it actually increases, it heightens the potential emotional state, the positive emotional state you're looking for. Potentially, not with every person. So during my steady state run today, I'm going to use it as an example because it's fresh in my head. I received feedback that I wasn't expecting and I ran a long time without looking at what pace I was going, but I felt like I was going really fast. And then I looked and it wasn't quite as fast as I felt like I was going. And so then I How'd had to, look? I know, Why did you look I know right? Because that feedback, that feedback wasn't necessary, but it did give me the opportunity to interpret it and then to 
re what is it reassess reappraise <sighs> to reappraise <laughs> that feeling or that thought and what i was thinking was like it's coming like the way that i'm feeling now is good i am right where i'm supposed to be at this moment and good things are coming and they're happening right now and that was really a good moment for me because oftentimes when I have the mismatch theory for myself, we've talked about that in last episode, we talked about it too. It's hard because I'm like, I'm feeling really good. I feel like everything is like I'm going really fast. And then to like look at it and it's not quite what you expected can cause despair. And we do get a feeling, you know, and that's more of a reaction, but we want to create a response. And that's that's the difference that Magnus wants us to look at between a reaction and a response. In fact, that is the third pillar. Mm -hmm. So once again, you could argue that these words mean largely the same thing, but in terms of how Magnus is trying to present the concept, uh, the difference between a response and a reaction is, as Andy's articulating, the, um, the reaction is the visceral instinctual dynamic, and the response is the deliberate, intentional, or planned, potentially planned, dynamic so how this is this is kind of the if i were to say like what's the key takeaway of what we're trying to articulate here and what we're drawing from this text in the moment is that i need to have the capacity to anticipate what i'm going to experience especially in a performance capacity where it's like um, something that matters more than just like a daily thing but in training that's how we that's how we get the most out of the training as well and so i need to be able to anticipate what i'm going to experience and separate that from the experience from my emotional capacities that I tend to associate with that. And then in the final step here is to then have planned strategies for what do I do in those moments when I'm experiencing different things. And so that's the, you know, like some days, and so this is how it goes, you know, here runners talk about this all the time. Some days it's like, I'm feeling awesome. And it's just like, I can do anything, right? And that's wonderful. Uh, and then suddenly, the next day or two days later or what you know a week later when i'm doing the same thing it's like wow i just feel terrible and it was just really a bad day and i'm like you know bad day is the moment i tell myself that on a run i'm likely to be less capable of achieving the benefit of the day by telling myself this is a bad day um i can't remember who who's the one who says like there's no such thing as a bad day in training. I mean, did we say that? that? You. Um, okay, so maybe I said that, but <laughs> it was, no but it was, it was in response day. to a Lydiard comment specifically. Mm. Um, and so the idea is like, is is there such thing as a bad day? Well, it, I mean, no, not if. Well, if you get injured or you know you collapse yes, or. Andy, give me the okay. We're talking about the rule, not the exception. <laughs> so a bad day in terms of like things aren't going as I would hope. Um, is simply me saying I would have liked this to be better, but just because it's not doesn't mean I can't achieve the benefits in some capacity mm -hmm. for the day. And so there's there's a lot going on there. Let's take a, a few minutes here and just kind of try to break apart uh, Magnus's approach to how then we can condition responses yeah. instead of reactions. And what you guys are probably wondering about, Andy, what about pain signals? What about discomfort? What about threats and challenges? That's exactly what That's I was That's what we're going to talk about. That's the question on my mind. You <laughs> well, in it. running, I think we do wonder about the discomfort and the pain. Dealing with pain, this is a quote, is deeply intertwined with toughness. While pain is not typically thought of as an emotion like joy or sadness, it functions much the same way. Signs of coalesce into a message telling us something may be off. 
Okay. So the coalescence of stimuli uh, that are unpleasant say to us something is amiss. That's my summary of the concept here. Uh, but then so in terms of like how we react to that, because it's an inevitability as a runner, and, and not always, but um, the intent usually is to test our physical capacity uh, in small ways to gain training adaptations. So in that, in that case, it is an inevitability. Mm -hmm. Well, once you've interpreted this pain, if it's a pain that is telling you to slow down or to stop, of course you do that. If it's not, if it is a bearable kind of pain for your run, which you learn by training, mm. then you accept pain. You don't fight it. And there was a lot of research that was done in regards to this, and I am just shocked that people volunteer for such research. What were they doing to them? Putting a hot prod on them. Hot probe? Yeah. Where? What did I say? Did I just you say said the wrong a prod, word? which I guess is basically the same thing. They were potting them. With a hot probe. There we so go. So they're burning them. <laughs> were they actually burning them? I don't know. They signed the waiver. They can do whatever they want. Electrical shock therapy. So Antoine Lutz and his colleagues did testing with half the volunteers as like normal average shows and the other half were practiced in meditation. Mm. And all those that tested experienced the same level of pain. They had them under an MRI. So they were looking at the brain. They could, they could see the like mm -hmm. the neurological yeah, responses of, okay. with a hot probe under the MRI. But the, when surveyed afterwards, the novice participants, the average shows, rated the pain as twice as intense as those <laughs> with practice meditation but not only that they were able because that could be like you know this surveying like these people um, might because of the way that they do life they might just rate things as lower who knows right <laughs> um, their experience but oh, this okay. is the part that is actual science of it the novice's amygdala, amygdala lit up as an emotional response of threat with the probe beforehand. So the, an anticipation. Before of, it touched them. Before it touched mm, them. Yeah. Well, those trained in meditation were aware, but their amygdala did not light up. They reappraised a signal that is usually automatic into a thoughtful response. That's usually something that happens. Like if you're about to get punched in the face, like you're going to get a shot of adrenaline. Huh. Uh, but if you know you're in this research situation and you're not actually in a life and death situation then you're able to say okay this is what this research is mm. about and and then just accept the pain and not fight it is there an argument here that steve magnus is trying to condition out of the populace the an appropriate flight or fight response here <laughs> He's like basically like trying to get us to the point where we no longer have a functioning fight and flight. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It depends on how well, quick you can make a response. It depends on what your clever. response is. Maybe you it might, depends on what your responses are. Yeah. You may be more clever in your ability to well, fight okay. or flight. So interesting point, right? Now let's look at things like extreme scenarios, um, like armed forces, special forces, specifically um, training practices, right? And so like their intent there is to condition someone to have a fight response to something that would naturally be a flight response for pretty much everyone, you mm. know? And so like, that's one example. Um, so in this sense, you know, there's, there's kind of like a, in some instances you want someone to have a visceral response that is a certain kind of response to things. Um, but in other instances, 
it in almost all other instances the visceral response is the less important one you know where where we need to be able to make cogent decisions as a result of the things we're experiencing that tends to be the kind of way humans ought to live life in most contexts and when we're training we're training specifically right because that was the recommendation so like in running it is likely not going to be when you experience discomfort it's likely not a life or death situation other times that that are and you need to know what that feels like too and have Hmm. a very good understanding of your body's limits but the idea is you train this out you train that immediate amygdala light up response out of yourself for running not for like someone's attacking you well and specifically you're trying to replace that visceral response with a series of options and in the moment your capacity to select one of them based off of what is most effective and that's the key that is the defining difference you might say between an intuitive runner and an unintuitive runner is not so much that they're better able to identify how they're feeling although that's a piece of the puzzle but more so that they have in their tool belt a series of choices and they know which one to best select mm. in a given moment. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my I was saying it earlier. That's kind of my like major takeaway of of these two pillars in combination in Magnus's text, which is just so I got to figure that out. Like how can I then develop those kinds of choices, and what mm-hmm. does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we often go from experiencing pain, adversity, or discomfort straight to freak out. Mm-hmm. And that is not productive and especially in running so that I, (laughs) I just feel like on this show, I'm always telling you guys all the, the deep, dark secrets of Andy. But, uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I used to hyperventilate, um, racing every time she saw me hyperventilate. It was really something. I I didn't know him. Uh, well, actually, we probably knew of each other in middle school. But, yeah, I don't know. I, but anyway, he's throwing me off. At track meets, I would hyperventilate, and usually that was like after a race, and I thought I had asthma, but it was actually a it was a reaction mm-hmm. to the feeling of threat that running can can have when you you run hard. <laughs> so, yep. um, I found that that was that was an issue for me, and. I went straight to freak out mm-hmm. and I, I still have to work with myself in many situations not to go there, but we want to train like we're these meditators. Is that a word? These... <laughs> we want to all be Elliot Kipchoge, <laughs> which is cool, calm, deliberate mm-hmm. mo- moments throughout the, yeah. Who can like sit in a sensation and evaluate it before a response. We should start calling Kipchoge Zen Master E. Oh, I want to talk to Kipchoge. We'll keep trying. The counterbalance uh, to the amygdala's pain button is the prefrontal cortex. So while the amygdala might trigger anxiety that wrecks our capacity to, to do a task, the prefrontal cortex acts to regulate the emotional response and maintain our performance on the task at hand. So we're able to then in the front prefrontal cortex counterbalance that immediate reaction. So that's actually what's going on in our brains. So that this decision making, we have to involve that prefrontal cortex because it might not 
naturally get into the equation. So we have to train ourselves to use our prefrontal cortex. We talk a lot about recruiting, <laughs> muscle recruitment and running. If you've listened to the show, you've heard us talk about it. Similarly, we need to activate that prefrontal cortex. Cognitive recruitment. A cognitive <laughs> recruitment. If that's if that's Ooh. the same, if we're talking on the same level. So uh, if you're overactive in your amygdala, and mm-hmm. this is in running as well as life and many other things, you are bur- you get burnout, and that's from having the overactive amyg- that's, amygdala. That's the concept of toxic stress in the literal sense is um, sustained. So they talk about this as um, – like there's there's layers of different things that can produce trauma and one thing that can produce trauma is is a it's not a major instance of stress but sustained stress over time uh can in the same sense like the threat response that i'm experiencing for protracted periods of time is traumatic uh because it because of that very concept and so burnout being one of the aspects that comes from that but there's others that are negative as well so this is all of your worst nightmares. No. Uh, well, what? in a general sense for the general population. Oh, the stress this test? This stress test. This, this research, is a fun one. This is a, this is actually was the same group of people, I believe. I'm sure because there are sadistic people out there. <laughs> tier social stress test. So the researchers introduced two stressors at the same time. A painful cream and they made that person make a speech and then get really negative feedback and like insults so and physical discomfort as well as unpleasant social feedback yes <laughs> okay and those that were the meditators had more of an acceptance of reality with less of an emotional elaboration in their response to it sure. they must have been like high school teachers then at some point like, <laughs> enduring people throwing pencils at you while oh, insulting you while you're trying to teach a class that uh, sounds like an average day yeah, or if you work at events, that at too promotions, <laughs> and people want to take all the free stuff and yep. vomit on you. Oh, uh, <laughs> you didn't need to say that. So it was interesting because as they were looking at their brains, it wasn't just in the amygdala response, but also in how quickly it recovered mm. to go back to baseline. So those that weren't trained stayed high, 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 high. But well, those who have learned to be more in tune to what's going on in their heads were able to come back to baseline a lot more quickly. Mm. And I mentioned this earlier. Often we're not only reacting to the initial stressor, but also the anticipation. Mm. And this also includes while you're in the stress, we anticipate it lingering on and on. And so that's why we keep hyperactive. We keep that amygdala firing because we're anticipating more and then and then this is just another bad thing about it is then we learn to do the same overreactive response the next time we're in a similar situation yeah that's that that's that conditioned as we were talking about earlier right so we're going to stay stay anxious we're going to stay high so to speak for a longer period of time when we have so we talk about like fears right like a fear of heights you're going to stay nervous and sweating and freaked out much longer if you aren't able to learn how to bring yourself back to that balance. So let's talk through just a couple examples then. So the text goes into how do we then deal with these types of things in some practical capacities. Um, and so we're going to give you just a few of them. And if you want the full the full scope of things, 
read the book because um, you'll get a lot more of the details that way too. Uh, but as you think about, okay, so th this all sounds like, you know, I have to basically be a Zen master to, <laughs> to be able to do anything valuable with this information. And of course that is not true, but uh, in the same sense of what types of things that someone might be trying to incorporate in terms of like practicing focus and such. Um, there's some considerations here that are within reach for all of us. So first among them is just that the idea of like creating space and having, so you have, you have the stressor or the stimuli and you have your reaction and just being able to pause in a sense before anything happens and separate yourself from the stressor for a moment is the kind of the first step for all of this to be able to have we were talking about like you need a list of choices um, to be able to make those choices you first need to be able to not react mm -hmm. immediately to something mm -hmm. yeah so how do we do this is kind of <laughs> the question right yes so we need to disrupt the pattern and especially for those of us who have been doing things like running for a long time and have reactions to things that happen during the run, we need to break that pattern and we need to slow down the feeling of freak out. And Zach's going to really love this, but they, the word used is mindfulness, being aware of what's going on. You say that's an overused word, right? It is a highly <laughs> overused word. It's also used in a lot of different kinds of capacities don't all mean the same thing so one of the ways that you can do that is having a calming conversation with with yourself yourself <laughs> so I mean, with someone else you could do that too but chances are you don't have a person with you every time these things are happening yeah, yeah. Well, it is helpful to say things out loud and that's why counseling yeah. is phenomenal is because in we fact, get an opportunity to talk about our problems out loud but that's not what this is talking about <laughs> right. we're having a calming conversation with ourselves and first we have to deal with the negative self-talk mm -hmm. we've got to deal with it one way is to avoid or ignore but that is not recommended no it, it it's not it's not very effective because it just basically pushes it down so yeah. that it will come back up and if it's a physical sensation this happens a lot in running if we actively try to push it away or ignore it, we're then doubling down and our brain doesn't receive the signal or we're not receiving the signal from our brain. So guess what? It gets louder. Mm. So then something like it's going to get louder because it's trying to tell you to do something, to change something. But uh, later on, I'll tell you how to say it in a better way to yourself. And so okay. instead of avoiding or ignoring, we're going to do something else. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing that we do when we avoid or ignore is the bulldoze me method. So ignore until I can't ignore it anymore. Mm, okay. And then for the second one, the second thing you can do is fight. Which is not good. <laughs> and then just bulldoze through. So that is a, a way and a method that a lot of people actually can find success for short periods of time. They can actually run decently well and then they're hanging into a garbage can afterwards or they're sprawled out on the ground. It's or protracted over time. It's, you know, I can sustain this for a while, but then eventually go back to the point of like overstimulus, overstimulation, overstimulation um, generally produces burnout. Uh, it's in the same sense here where the aggressive response to the challenge is not it's it's not a homeostasis uh, kind of response. And so as a result, I tend to end up finding a break point where I can no longer actually sustain that level mm -hmm. of energy mm -hmm. or response.
the next one is what I was referring to. Instead of pushing it away or ignoring it, it's accepting it. So Mm -hmm. opening oneself up to the experience, whatever thought or sensation enters into our conscious awareness, if we're able to recognize that we open ourselves up to it and we we are not giving the sensation power which is what we fear we fear that as soon as we admit it that it's all going downhill that's not true it actually drains that sensation of its control so when we tell our brain when we're having a signal like ah, fatigue i keep Mm -hmm. using that one fatigue sure and I actually recognize it, be like, yes, I'm tired, but I have six, or I should say say it in second person or third person. Andy, you. I'll do it in third person. Andy, <laughs> you have, or and yeah, Andy, you have, you know, six miles left, and you're fatigued, but you're you're doing well. You're on your way. Uh, you mm. get to be done in six miles, and you're actually speaking to your brain you're having a calming conversation with your brain and it's actual response to so that, you so that is as well that's kind of the next step also which is the reappraisal where yeah. you where you then identify a choice in the situation um and this is kind of the key if i were to say so at this moment if i were to say like you know some of this sounds like there's a good and a bad way to respond to things and you should not ever do the one you know like the fight response um, we're, we're talking about how, like, if you sustain that regularly over time, it tends to be unsustainable at some point. Um, uh, but that's not to suggest that the fight response is not one of the choices in your repertoire, because you may, you know, think about the situation, um, depending on where you are in a moment and what you're trying to accomplish, let's put ourselves in a race situation here. And you're in late stages of the race. It may in fact be the right choice to choose the fight one. And I'm going to bulldoze this because. I got to beat the person next to me and we've got, you know, 200 meters yeah, to do it. That's so it has, that's again, the proximity it matters. It matters. Yeah. Oh, if you're oh, in I'm a, not saying that's a yeah. good response when you're at the very beginning of the race and you've got 26 <laughs> miles to run. No, but the point here is, is there's not, it don't, I hesitate to disqualify any response at this stage insofar as it is a deliberate response based off the situation and a fitting one for the thing I'm trying to accomplish. Right. So keep that in mind then, because what we tend to see with these types of things is, and so I'll I'll zoom all the way out and say, okay, like a visceral response to something, um, you know, that the emotional state that we experience in a visceral response can be a valuable way to respond to a certain kind of situation. And the example here is like the concept of righteous indignation, right? Like the idea of being angry is not always bad all the time. There are certain things that we ought to be angry about. I would be one of the first people to say that. Um, So like in the running situation, there are certain things that I ought to like grind through. And and this idea of like, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to fight right through it. Um, So that has a place. But But it's a deliberate reaction. It should not be a thing that happens uncontrollably as the result of. And without consideration of duration or yeah, how much you have left in a race or what's coming next. So... It's good to be thinking about that. I'm going to leave you guys with just a really brief strategy to develop calm conversation. One, time alone in your head. Mm. Studies show that we hate that. So I love it. <laughs> Zach being an exception. Most of the universe exists only in my head. <laughs> but being alone in your head, it, Magna says, is foundational to toughness. Mm. 
And so that's why we advise that when you're doing your workouts that you don't have music or even our podcast in your ears when you're doing a hard workout. Well, hang on, Our podcast doesn't count. (laughs) It does. It's too much. You have to spend too much cognitive power listening to a podcast on your hard days for you to really tune in the way that you need to tune in. Let's And let's just quickly reference the points with these kinds of things is if I am one who finds difficulty even motivating myself to want to do the thing without the sound in my ears or the person that I meet with to run it and those kinds of things, keep in mind that this is the kind of thing that I have to build up over time gradually. And so you can't make a binary shift here and say, I've gone from running every day with my running group to every day I'm going to run by myself now. Um, that tends to be unsustainable. Go back to the point of like that creates an emotional state. Sure. That is that makes sense, a, a stress state. Thanks so for mentioning that. ease into and out of something or, or just look for a kind of a, a, a nice balance of right. it. Um, but what it comes down to is there's always going to be a case to be made for I'm running by myself with no external attention grabbing yeah. anything. That's yeah. a good thing to have to some degree for yeah. everyone. Mario Mendoza mentioned that. So did Lindsey Flanagan. So Mario Mendoza of- runs like 300 miles solo on a treadmill. He's a different kind of <laughs> He's He's thing. really got this down. Yes, he does. Actually, it would have been fun to bring him into this. I should have thought of that before. So cultivating this kind of awareness when we're alone with our own thoughts activates an emotional emotion regulating network that includes the amygdala. So again, that's how we are able to get that prefrontal cortex working in addition to um, during those responses, making it more automatic to think about things. And, and then number two, so the second layer of that then, practice you know the alone time in your head. Um, and then in doing so, Focusing on trying to keep your mind steady, focusing on trying to develop this capacity that we're talking about, where I can separate the reaction from the response, um, where I can have uh, some choices to make and be able to get to the point where I can make those choices Mm -hmm. without a visceral reaction overtaking me. Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this in our listener Q&A because I had a great question about it. Good questions. And this is going kind of long. Um, But the idea that you can turn the dial, turn your attention up on something or down on something, you want to be able to have good control of that. And I'll talk about that in another episode a little bit more in detail. And then creating and amplifying, so examining and adjusting, visualizing, and then making sure that it's also an experience. So what do you want out of this experience? What is it serving for you? Mm. Yeah. So that was a whole lot. So that (laughs) now has solved your problem of sports psychology for all time. Zach. Well, he's so so sarcastic. I just want to make sure people know when you're trying to be sarcastic and when you're not. You don't think they, you don't think they realize. Basically, whenever Zach says anything superfluous, no. Anyway, so the point here, let's just kind of make it one more time so we we bring everything in full circle. Um, As we consider then what are we trying to achieve when we're growing our intuition as runners, the idea there is I need to be able to develop my capacity to make deliberate choices that are uh, based off of what is best for the moment, not just what I'm feeling in a moment. And and if I can get a little better at doing that, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like maybe there's an end goal somewhere of like the best and ideal 
but I don't know what it is, and I'm not there. And, uh, I mean, you could argue that Zen Master E might be there, but he's not. <laughs> Elliot Kipchoge has his moments of weakness in these kinds of things as much as anyone. Well, maybe. Not as no one's seen else. it. <laughs> I mean, maybe not. But, no, so, so we do, though. We have the capacity to make gains in these types of things in such a way that are going to benefit us in our endeavors. So seek a way to make some progress, and you're going to appreciate it mm-hmm. as you do. Absolutely. Now on to the world of running. First up in the world of running, some shout outs from the last week or so here. We've we've got a lot of a lot of people that we know have been competing in a lot of things, um, and we like to try to keep you updated, as we often say, on past podcast guests as well as others that we've been discussing on the podcast. So a uh, quick few of those. First up, John Cody Risch, uh, Cody being one of our friends as well as uh, a guest on the podcast and uh, U.S. race walker, was third in the United States 35K championships, which is an incredible result and performance. Uh, excellent work there, Cody, but also not just that he was top three, which um, in any of the U.S. championships, that's big stuff because that's what helps you qualify for things like world championships as well. Uh, but in doing that, uh, he also walked an incredibly uh, sizable personal best, which is very impressive. But at this point, being able to still see substantial gains like that, Cody is just continuing to march on his way to uh, premier status in United States race walking, which is uh, really exciting to see. Nice work, Cody. Also, we were talking about the Houston uh, marathon and half marathon results recently, and I uh, wanted to just share a few more of the finishes from some previous podcast guests there. Uh, in the half marathon at Houston, Zuhair Talby ran and finished in fifth place in an hour and one minute and 18 or eight seconds. Uh, so an incredible performance there. Very well done. Um, Erica Kemp was seventh in the women's half marathon and she w- ran one ten fourteen. and Lindsay Flanagan was eighth right behind her in one ten thirty five. So excellent work all around there. And then on the full marathon side, Parker Stinson, if you recall from way back when, when we had him on the podcast, uh, Parker Stinson finished in two twelve eleven for fourth place in the Houston marathon, full marathon as well. So some great performances there. Lots of exciting things that we don't always have a chance to get to every time we update on an event. Speaking of exciting things and fun events, the USA Cross Country Championship um, was this past weekend. And in this one in particular is exciting, both because uh, you see such an interesting mix of runners. You get like marathoners and then track stars and road racing stars all come together in cross country. Um, and it's like anyone's game. You can see a marathoner win cross country championships just as easily as you can see a miler win it, uh, depending on how they do in cross country. So that's fun. But also the top six finishers at this year's U.S. cross country champ will go on to compete for United States at the World Cross Country Championships, which will be held in Australia on February 18th. And if you're familiar with Australia this time of year, it is summer. So now we're talking summer cross country in Australia on February 18th. That's going to be really uh, exciting. So 
we'll keep you updated on that event when we get to it. But here on the men's race side, we had some excitement, including a new U.S. champion, first ever U.S. title for Emmanuel Bohr, who runs for the U.S. Army. He did previously run for the Army Elite Program, the WCAP, uh, but he does not anymore. And so as such, it's kind of interesting to see, like, you know, maybe he's got uh, some potential. He doesn't have any pro sponsorships right now. He doesn't have any contracts. So maybe there's a contract in his future, uh, given these recent performances. He ran great in cross country to win the title, but then he also ran great in the season 2022 and on the track finished third at the U S indoor championships was not able to run in the world indoor championships because the army did not let him travel in that instance. Um, and by the way, the army has different kinds of parameters and structures and strictures for whether their runners can travel, um, which makes sense because they are part of the U S army as well. Um, so he didn't get to compete in the world champs, which is a bummer because that would have been his first appearance there and that stage. So, uh, redeeming that here with the cross country finish, hopefully he is going to be able to travel then to Australia in February. We're definitely looking forward to that. Um, so Emmanuel Bohr, great work there, but then behind him, remember top six represent team USA. And it was an incredible finish because uh, second place went to Andrew Colley, who uh, was able to pull away a little bit from that chase pack to finish second, um, just a handful of seconds behind Bohr. Uh, so a great run, by the way, from Andrew Colley, who's been injured for a number of years now, basically hasn't really seen it and, and as much of a great season until just this, this past few months, uh, for a few years now. So great work there. Exciting to see that come together for cross country, but then the next four positions, uh, and uh, next five positions, in fact, were separated by only eight tenths of a second. And if you look on the live results page, um, it actually has them all finishing at the same time. <laughs> they were within the same second, but eight tenths apart from each other. Uh, and only on, on, when one of them didn't get to go on the team. So it was like a sprint finish for who would make the team. And we have to say, you know, a bummer for Reed Buchanan, who did not finish in the top six positions this time. Um, and I should mention, they do say he may still go uh, to the world championships and represent team USA. It is possible because anyone who finished in front of him may decide not to, and then he could go in their place. And that happens more often in cross country than other disciplines in running. However, that being the case, the main reason why someone bows out of the world championship cross country is because they're focused on indoor track. And I have to say, I highly doubt anyone in front of Reed Buchanan in this instance, these top six finishers would do that because these runners are all, more like road racing and cross country types of runners than they are like track runners. So they're highly unlikely to skip out on this opportunity. Those names then, I mentioned Bohr and Kali. And then in third place was Anthony Rodich. Behind him, Leonard Career, Sam Chalanga, and Dylan Maggard, all competing now potentially in the world championships. And Hillary Bohr, by the way, who is the younger brother of Emmanuel Bohr, uh, was in eighth place also, which was exciting. By the way, quick note, bummer of a story for uh, Emmanuel Bohr here on one front, because while he did now qualify for a world championship team in previous uh, years at the world cross country championships, anyone who finished in the top 15 would then also get an invitation to the world track and field championships in the 10,000 meters. It's like an automatic qualifier. Um, it, which is a great opportunity because uh, you have more potential uh, cross-country opportunities in some places than you do track even at times, depending on where you are in the world. So it's a, it's a really neat rule. However, they changed it. <laughs> and just this year, the World Athletics Organization now changed it to it, it's based on your ranking. Again, 
remember all the time qualifying stuff that used to be in the past is moving toward more of a world ranking system. So now your cross country world ranking is what gets you the potential uh, invitation to the world championship 10,000 meter track. Uh, however, this is why it's a disappointing thing for Emmanuel Bohr because his ranking would be great so far because he just won the US title, which is a great influence on your ranking. And if he finishes well at the world championships, that would be it except that you don't get a world ranking in a discipline until you've competed at least three times that year or in that cycle. And he's only done two, including the world champs, cross-country races because there just aren't that many big cross-country races, certainly qualifying events in the United States. Matter of fact, like anywhere in the world, as far as like professional level cross-country, um, there's just not super common uh, in general outside of certain places. So that that being the case, Emmanuel Bohr skipped out on the only other chance he would have had in the U.S., which was the sound running uh, cross-country meet about a month ago. He could have done that, and then he would have had three, but he, he didn't know that at the time because apparently nobody tells anyone in the USA when they change major rules like this, uh, you know, on USA track and field, perhaps like the organization who's supposed to govern the sport, uh, could inform their athletes and then agents and coaches of these things. But, you know, why would they do that? So... That's unfortunate because that means that he potentially won't have the opportunity to get an automatic pass onto the World Championships track race as well. But we'll see how things unfold because I think he's got a legit shot at qualifying on the track uh, the normal way also. Now, on the women's race side, also a new debutante for uh, USA titles uh, goes to winner Edna Kurgat. She finished first her first title in the USA track and field uh, series of events. Um, and so that of course, any, any disciplines. So Edna Kurgat only just received her citizenship in 2021 and then had uh, a, a decent, but not a great year um, in the last 12 months. So she's clearly coming on strong here, which is an exciting time for her then. Um, and then the top six for the women was more of a decisive uh, reality early in the race than in the men's race. As a matter of fact, it was about halfway through when it was pretty clear who the top six were going to be unless, you know, someone fell off or something changed dramatically. So they stuck through it and the rest of the race and ended up finishing as predicted. And it went to McKenna Morley in second, uh, past podcast guest, and then Emily Durgan, Emily LaPerry, Wayne Kalati, and Katie Izzo to round out the top six. And I should note that Durgan, LaPerry, and Izzo all have the same coach, which is kind of cool. Terrence Mahone, um, he coaches them individually. They're not like part of a team together. Uh, and so they do, uh, I guess, potentially meet together like at training camps a couple times a year. But they all live like one's in Hawaii, one's in San Diego, one's in somewhere else, Flagstaff, I guess. Um, so that being the case, I just find it interesting that the name Terrence Mahone should mean something to uh, those who pay close attention to the running world because he also coached, you know, Ryan Hall, Dina Castor, among many other Olympians um, from uh, multiple parts of the world, as it were. Uh, so really kind of uh, exciting to see that, you know, that's going to be a fun thing for the coach to have a few athletes represented at the world championships. It's fun. Now, let's talk about an interesting scoop here. This one is uh, what you might say is an inside look uh, behind the curtain as they go. I'm mixing metaphors now um, with the training of professional runners, which is always interesting to us. We enjoy being able to get some of these kinds of details, not because they are instructive. I always, I always talk about this with runners. Uh, we should never look at someone else's training and, in and try to emulate it simply at face value because you know, this person's fast, so I should do what they're doing. That by itself is never the right rationale for doing training, uh, but it is, it is informative and can be interesting. Um, 
and possibly uh, make you know make its way into something that another runner might do. But the point being here, this one was cool. So the On Athletics Club, which is Dathan Ritzenstein's group uh, based out of Boulder, um, they are uh, mostly middle distance focused running crew. You'll see people running like mile races up to. Uh, 800 meters up to 5k usually they've got some good 10k performances certainly as well now that being the case um this track club has a lot of fast people <laughs> uh, some of the fastest in the world in fact and so when you get a workout like this and you hear what they did it's kind of funny just to see wow that was just one training group of a few few people running together so they ran uh the workout was a mile and then uh, quite a long rest and some 2k like steady tempo repeats and then some 200s some quick fast 200s at the end uh that mile that they did to open it up was clearly like a hard effort type of thing because all six of the guys running together ran under 358 it was actually not a full mile it was a 1600 four laps on the track so that means basically a four minute mile and that's six of them all in the same time so whenever you've got like you know all your teammates running incredibly fast performances uh, all at the same time. That's a good thing. So hopefully they continue that on into the racing scene. And then after that, they went on to run, you know, those 2K repeats, which were just basically a broken up tempo, and then some 200s. And speculation abounded on uh, the message boards and Let's Run, the place where all good things go to die. Um, so once again, never look to the message boards for inspiration or encouragement, but it can be interesting at times. So everyone's talking about like, well, oh, why did they do that workout? What was that for? And you know, what's, what's the purpose of a workout like that? And it's clearly, you know, with uh, as many said on the message boards, um, it's clear that in a situation where you're not racing a lot, you do need some race level stimuli in your training experience. Uh, prior to when you get to like the actual race day uh, for high school or college runners who are racing regularly, they wouldn't do workouts like this most of the time because they wouldn't need something like that. But for pros, but even just adult runners who don't race a lot, um, this type of a thing is in fact uh, a good kind of training stimulus in certain points in time in certain ways. So what they do is they do like basically a time trial of a mile. And remember, these are track runners, so they're running shorter distances. So a time trial of a mile makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then they, after that, they take a decent break so that they're fully recovered. And then they just do some good, strong effort stuff, uh, steady tempo type of thing with some 200 meter repeats for something kind of fast and quick at the end. They were not by any means like sprinting those 200s based on the times they were running. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's a really interesting approach and you'll see things like that a lot at the, um, the professional level, especially when they're kind of like getting ready for a racing season. Um, uh, they're not, they just don't race that much. And so they need kind of near race effort types of things to accomplish that. That's good. Okay. Yeah. You certainly could do that in other ways as well. Um, you could, for instance, instead of doing the time trial and then some harder effort stuff right after you could do something the next day like some tempo types of things or, or some hill repeats, for instance, which you'll see things like that quite a bit uh, as well. Now, one other note. This I find just this is very fascinating. So it's, uh, it's a bonus for you, if you will. Uh, this article was published by Canadian Running Magazine, uh, specifically on rest as a part of our training program. Um, and it comes from Coach David Roche, who has what he calls the three day off rule. And it goes like this, when in doubt, take three days off. Um, so the, the point of the rule is if something's not going well, and I'm just not sure, like, I don't know if I am hurt or if I'm sick or if I'm feeling like I'm getting hurt or sick or uh, something's, you know, 
something's amiss, right? Um, but it's more than that. And that's why I thought it was interesting enough to dwell on it for a minute here, uh, because as Roche goes into it, the concept of stressors, like, uh, you know, stress your system to achieve adaptations, um, those types of things are more than just physical stress. And so we see adaptations uh, in terms of like growth and progress from any kind of stresses in life, potentially. And that includes things like mental, emotional stress and relational stress as he goes into. So let me quote here very briefly and then kind of reflect on how this connects to what we talk about with runners when we're talking about training. So uh, quoted from Rosh here, recognizing what mental, emotional and work and family stress you are adding to your training load is valuable. So is knowing that even if you scale back training time, your body is always striving to make adaptations to become better at handling stress, both physical and mental, end quote. So what we're seeing here is, in principle, stress from multiple dimensions is all still contributing to the same. It's like all this stress from all the parts of life, they all play in the same pool together. And so uh, you can't necessarily separate the training effect uh, in terms of where it's coming from in that sense. So those things influence our life experience. They also influence our training adaptations, uh, even if they are not themselves physical. Now, part of the rationale for that, and what is an interesting reflection in the article, is when you look at something like cortisol levels, um, any kind of stress can increase your cortisol levels, physical, mental, emotional, and otherwise. And cortisol levels, when increased, often, if they're increased for too high or for too long sustained increase, can produce um, an inflammatory response, a physical inflammatory response. So we see in many instances, things like chronic inflammation, which acute inflammation is how you essentially how you kind of heal and recover. Um, you stress your system, your body kind of sends the recovering agents to that area or to the, to the capacity, whatever it may be that needs uh, some kind of recovery. And then you, you exit the inflammatory response and you are stronger for it, right? So that usually takes a day or two, depending on the type of stress or things like that. But that means that if you are, uh, if, if you're doing that acutely, it's good, but if it's continuing, if this inflammatory response becomes chronic or is sustained for too long a period of time, um, that can in fact be very, very bad, like linked to all the bad things, cancer, diseases, among many other things, um, in terms of like something as simple as injury. So it's not good. And we know that stress in general in life can produce such reactions, physical and otherwise, um, and at the same time, we know that to thrive as a runner, it means I have to try to manage both of these dimensions, the running dimension and the rest of life dimension, which is actually many things by itself. And so when I think about something like this and I see this article, um, what it tells me immediately is that we, we always need to be studying our state, our condition, and what it is that we need in that given moment to ensure that we are sustaining the right balance. We talk about it in terms of a thriving runner. One of those key pillars has to be life balance. Um, it, it is just as important as whatever you're doing in training to be successful as a runner. So I can appreciate this article helps pr provide some more substance to that. And I would encourage you to go and read it if you'd like to um, get a little bit more of what they're referring to here. And we've linked to it on the website at atzrunning.com. Now, having said all of that, we certainly know 
that this has been a heavy episode in terms of the types of things we're trying to get at. And uh, we've been talking about some of these topics at length in the last couple of weeks. And it's not always easy to figure out what does that mean? What does it look like for me in my training, in my situation? So we want to always help you with that. And one of the ways we can help you with that best is interaction and communication. And so if you have questions and you want to ask them and we can provide some thoughts and answers to those questions, feel free to go to a to z running.com slash question, and we'll put it on air to uh, answer and respond to it there. But we'll also respond to you directly uh, with some substance for you there. And if you need something more than just an answer to a question, we are glad to support you in more ways in training capacity as well. So you can head to a to z running.com slash coaching to learn more about our services there too. So thanks again for listening, for lending your ear to our word sounds. And we look forward to talking with you again soon. 